0: Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. So we're still in Mark chapter 1, and we're coming to this next paragraph, verses 35 to 39. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him everyone is looking for you. And he said to them let us go on to the next town that I the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So here we have another snapshot from the life of Jesus. It's the next day. So this is Sunday, actually, because the previous section was the Sabbath, if you remember. So we're going to see several things here the Lord's increasing popularity, Uh, we have a statement from Jesus himself about the purpose of his coming, and we have this marvelous glimpse into Jesus' prayer life that we see right off. So we're going to think our way through this together. So the first thing, I want us to look at Jesus' early morning prayer. Verse 35, it's good for us to look at the prayer life of Jesus. You might be thinking right off, why did Jesus need to pray? He was the Son of God. We'll answer that in a moment. But look how it begins, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, So this was probably anywhere from 3 to 5 a.m. In the ancient world, people didn't have clocks and they went by the sunlight and so on. And they probably got up very early for work, probably at the crack of dawn. And what we're being told here is that Jesus got up even before that. So the streets are empty in Capernaum. And he leaves undetected Peter's house, and he leaves the city of Capernaum, the town of Capernaum, and seeks solitude. He seeks privacy. It's clear from the Old Testament that a feature of Jewish piety, you know what I mean by piety, that means the religious life of a Jewish person, that it was characterized by prayer in the morning. Let me give you some beautiful citations from the book of Psalms, the book of devotions, the Old Testament hymn book. But it gives you a peek into the private prayer life of the psalmist. Psalm 5, verse 3. "'O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice.'" In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. Psalm 88, verse 19, verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. And then the great Psalm 119 and verse 147. I rise before dawn, cry for help, I hope. In your words. So, just a few samples from the Old Testament. Jesus is following the pattern of Jewish piety in his own life, rising early in the morning. But he departs the city, it says. No sad. He rose very early in the morning while it was still dark. He departed and he went into a desolate place. So, Jesus wants to be alone with his father. Back then, the towns and the villages were very close together, and the streets were narrow. There was lots of people, lots of activity going on once the sun came up, and it was very hard to find a place of solitude. So the Lord had to leave Capernaum, and he went into probably the hills above those towns and sought privacy there, solitude And there he prayed. The Lord Jesus Christ, he modeled what he taught us, didn't he? What did he tell us to do in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 6, verse 6. When you pray, not if, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you openly. So Jesus modeled his own words as he did in everything he taught. He was no hypocrite. He didn't tell others to do something that he himself didn't do. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the model of secret prayer. Somebody said that secret prayer is... The secret of prayer. Turn that over in your thoughts for a moment. Because nobody's watching, nobody's listening. This is not like praying in a restaurant before you know a meal and everybody's around you, and some are the stand up and you know they it's out loud and everybody around them hears. That's kind of how the Pharisees did it. They prayed in the streets, and they prayed loud, and they wanted people to hear their prayer. Jesus taught just the opposite, and he modeled just the opposite. Because when you're alone with God, you can be totally open and honest, and you can bear your heart and your secrets to him, and we all have secrets. We all have things that we need to bring before God in prayer. So why did Jesus pray if he's the Son of God? Or God the Son? Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is God the Son. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. There's only one God in the Bible, and this one God exists eternally in three distinct persons. The Lord Jehovah's Witnesses like to argue, well, when Jesus is praying, who is he praying to himself? Because we say that Jesus is God. And so they, they think, well, is that what you're saying? No, the, the father is not the son and the son is not the father. These are two distinct persons within the nature of the one God. And so when the Lord Jesus was praying, he was praying to his Father. He was opening his heart to the Father. Now, what did he pray? Well, yes, he's the Son of God, but he's also a real man. Paul said there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's fully God and fully man in one person forever. That's the historic Christian position on the person of Christ, and that was his person was attacked early on in the history of the church. In the third century, third and fourth century, they had to deal with all the heresies that were brought into the open. Attacks made on the person of Christ: well, he didn't have a real body; he was really not God; he was uh, the highest creation of God. All many, many heresies. And so the church was forced to define what the belief was, what the official position was concerning the person of Christ. He is one person with two natures, fully God and fully man. Not two persons, one person with both natures. Very, very special. He was a theoanthropic person. He he was the God-man the man Christ Jesus. So, he was a real man, and as a man, he had a real need to pray, like we all do. He derived strength from prayer, as he sought his father. He depended upon the Father and the Spirit as a man. So that's one reason, because he was... A real man, he had a need to pray. Also, in this context, remember the day before we went over it last Sunday? The Lord had a very long day teaching in the, in the synagogue and then encountering uh, the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. And then later that evening, all of Capernaum came at, after sundown to Peter's house. Wanting healing. And Jesus probably spent a long time Saturday night ministering to these people. Now it's Sunday morning. And he's up early in the morning to pray because, as he's going to tell us later in this text, he's about to launch a preaching tour throughout all Galilee. So on both ends, he had a strenuous day the day before, lacked sleep, no doubt, and he's got a preaching tour ahead. He's going to be ministering to people through preaching and casting out demons. Oh, he had a need for prayer in view of that, for sure. And then I think you can add to that this truth, that Jesus lived in a continual, uninterrupted fellowship and communion with his Father. Unlike any of us who quickly forget God during the day and can get wrapped up in doing something else. It's part of our weakness as men and women. But Jesus was, he stayed in constant communion with his Father. He never forgot his father for a moment. They were in very close, intimate communion and relationship. This is why when on the cross, the father had to abandon him and drew out that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was a first in the life of Jesus. This was the hell of the cross that he experienced. His fellowship with God was broken. On the cross. He came under his father's displeasure. So the Lord lived in this constant communion with the father. His personal prayer life is evident of that. And so for these reasons, Jesus prayed. So prayer, I think of our prayer life as an indicator like the vital signs of life in the physical world. You know, to check on your health, they take your temperature, they take your pulse and, and all of that. And they kind of check, this is how they find out how healthy a person is. And one's prayer life is, this is the, the spiritual pulse of a person. This is their spiritual heartbeat. This is where it's revealed how healthy we are spiritually. What is our Prayer life like? Do we spend time with the Lord in private prayer? And Jesus set the tone and the example for us here by praying in the morning. A good time to begin your day with the Lord. Now, secondly, in verses 36 and 37, and I changed what I called this, originally I, was, I, I called it Peter hunts down Jesus or Jesus is pursued by Peter and his companions. And then I thought, no, I think more of the idea is here is that Jesus will not be uh, controlled and constrained and commanded by other people. This is uh, more the heart of what we find here. Think of that now. We're looking at the autonomy of Jesus, that he was independent. He was not going to be controlled and manipulated by other people. So Simon, verse 36, and those who were with him. So it would be Simon and Andrew and James and John, the four disciples that are in the picture at this point in Mark's account. So they got up early in the morning, and Jesus is not there. He's not in bed wherever he slept. Where is he? And here what is coming is a lot of people from Capernaum have also gotten up and they're seeking Jesus out at Peter's house again. They've come back, but he's not here. So Peter goes and the text says that they searched for him. This word is, uh, this is the idea that they tracked him down. They hunted for him. This is a word that's used in the New Testament for pursuing with the intent of persecuting, even so. It has kind of can be a, have a negative overtone to it, and actually, it's a little bit of an intrusion here because Jesus is in private prayer, secret prayer, and now Peter is looking all over for him, and finally finds him. And this is. Kind of an unwelcomed intrusion at this point. But Peter doesn't know any better. He doesn't know. He doesn't understand. At this point, he has a lot to learn about Jesus Christ. And notice what Peter, after they finally find him, everyone is looking for you. Now, I want to ask a question. Do you think there was a little annoyance in that statement from Peter? That he was just a little annoyed with with Christ. I I think so. And beneath that statement, everyone is looking for you, you can just kind of hear the questions. Where have you been? Why are you here? What are you doing here? You're supposed to be back in Capernaum, back in the house. Everyone's looking for you. Peter's trying to control Jesus here. trying to manipulate him as to what he need, where he needs to be, what he needs to be doing. But the Lord Jesus, he won't be manipulated by his disciples. You remember Peter tried to do that on another occasion? Matthew 16. In Caesarea Philippi, when Peter made his great statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, Peter, man hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. It's an amazing thing. I mean, Peter had like a revelation. He just he said the right words. He said it by divine inspiration, according to Jesus. You think Peter would feel pretty good about himself, having made that confession. The very next verses... Matthew tells us that then Jesus began to tell them that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer and die. This is Matthew 16. Very next thing he says after this account with Peter. And Peter, feeling good about what he says to Jesus, he said, oh no, Lord, this is not going to happen. You're not going to die So he's he's telling Jesus what he's going to do. He's trying to control him. And Jesus response to Peter. At that point, Peter had been the mouthpiece of God the Father in the previous verses. Now he's the mouthpiece of who, according to Jesus? The devil. Because Jesus rebuked the devil. Get behind me, Satan. Imagine that. A saint can be unwittingly an instrument or a tool of the enemy, not realizing. Again, Peter is ignorant. He doesn't understand God's program. He didn't understand the purpose of Christ's coming into the world. But there, Jesus is not going to be manipulated by Peter, by Satan. Jesus won't even be manipulated by his own mother. Now, they came to his uh, both. Uh, his fa- his stepfather was alive in Luke chapter two when Jesus was twelve years old. It's the only the only account of we have of Jesus as a child, Luke records it for us. Really interesting. So at the Passover, they had all been there as a family, enjoying the the the. Um, sacrifice and all that they did during the Passover season, that week-long celebration in Jerusalem. And so they went home, and they came in caravans, and they went home in caravans. And Jesus' mother and father assumed he was with them as a boy, 12 years old. And they got home to Nazareth, and he wasn't with them. Where is he? They went all the way back to Jerusalem, and they found him in the temple. And he was with the doctors of theology, asking questions and answering questions. And they were amazed. And they, and as finally his mother and father came in, where have you been? We've been looking for you all over and so on. And they're talking like that to him. And he says to them, don't you know, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. So even as a boy of 12 years old, he was aware of his mission. He was not going to be derailed by his parents at that point. And there's another instance of his mother trying to manipulate him. Again, she tried to manipulate him at the wedding feast of Cana that I referred to last week and the week before in John chapter 2, His response to her when she said they have no wine was, Woman, my time has not yet come. Now, he was not being disrespectful to her when he spoke like that. Like today, that would sound very disrespectful. He did not disrespect his mother. But he was making her aware that he's on another time schedule and that there's something else going on here that she's not fully aware of yet as his mother. So there's many instances of people trying to control Jesus Christ. He's not going to be controlled, constrained, commanded, manipulated by others. Well, whose will then was he concerned about doing? If it wasn't their will that could be pressed on him, then whose will was he concerned to fulfill? Well, clearly the will of the Father. He was here on official business. He had been commissioned by the Father in heaven. And he exercises his will in accordance with the will of the Father. Well, that's all I'll say about that. Now, verse 38 and 39. And this is my third point. Jesus has other plans Jesus has other plans. So Peter says, everyone is looking for you, implying you should be in Capernaum, ministering to the crowds that have come out today looking for you. Jesus' reply to that is, let us go to the next towns. So Peter, he can't control him. He can't tell him what to do. He's under the will of the Father. He's here to do the Father's will, the Father's bidding, not Peter's. Not what Peter thinks he should be doing. So it's interesting. The Lord Jesus, he doesn't rebuke Peter. He doesn't really try to correct him. He just says, very simply, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. It's a very gracious answer. No, I'm not going to go back to Capernaum. My, my work was done there for now. He'll eventually come back there and minister. But for right now, he's beginning a tour through Galilee. And this is what the Father had set before him. Notice he says, let us. Who's the us? Simon and Andrew, James and John. So, Though they've tried to control him and he could be upset about it. He's not. He's not upset. He understands where they are and their understanding of his mission. Let us, he says, go and preach in these other places. See, this? he he wants them with him because he called them to be what? To be fishers of men. He's going to teach them, by his example, how to fish for people. How to catch people. They've been in the business for many, many years. They grew up fishing for fish. He's called them to a much higher profession. They're called to fish for men. And he's going to train them. Let us go into these... Other towns. Now, the word for town here is uh, different. This is not a village. I mentioned that before. A town is bigger than a village, but a town is smaller than a city. So this is, there were many towns around Galilee. And Jesus is going there to preach. Now, notice this. For that is why I came out. This is a critical statement from Jesus, one that we do not want to miss. Now Luke's account of this same passage, Luke states it like this, Luke 4:43, "For I was sent for this purpose." This is the meaning. He doesn't mean, for this is why I left Capernaum, or the house. He's not talking about, for this purpose, I left the house and the town of Capernaum. No, no, no. It's the much higher, he came out from where? He came out of heaven into this world. As he says in John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into this world. The Lord Jesus Christ was commissioned by the Father to come into this world and to accomplish something. See, the Lord Jesus always had the purpose of his coming before him. He never lost sight of why he was here. Jesus had a great purpose, and he knew what his purpose was. He faithfully pursued that purpose. He carried out his mission. He couldn't be distracted by popularity, uh, by the opposition of the enemy, could not derail him, slow him down. The pressure of his disciples could not change what he came here to do. This is a very, very important thing for us to ponder for a few minutes this morning is why did Jesus come out? Why did Jesus come from heaven? This is a a great theological question. This is very important. We don't understand the history of Jesus of Nazareth until we understand why he was here why he came, what his business was, what the mission that he was to accomplish was. And you know, it's this is a diamond in the New Testament. This has several facets to it. It's not just one pat answer. This is one answer here, and I'll come to it, but let's begin uh, looking, at what he says in John chapter 6, because this this is one of the great statements. Why did he come? Well, in a general sense, we can say he came to execute the will of the Father. Okay, Keep that as the big, broad umbrella over these things I'm going to mention now. So he was on a mission to do the Father's will in this world. Then we need to ask, well, what was the will of the Father? What did the Father want Him to do? What was the Father's plan for His Son? Jesus says it so clearly, John chapter 6 and verse 38 and verse 39. John 6, 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Can't get any clearer than this. Here it is. This is the definition of it. And this is the will of him that sent me. Now listen how he states this. This is so interesting, the way he puts this. This is the will of him that sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He's talking about people there. What is revealed to us in John's Gospel is that the Father made a gift to his Son. He gave the Son a great number of people. In the Bible, they're called the elect. the chosen of God. And the Father gave these people as a gift to the Son, but He had to do something in order to purchase them, in order to make them His own possession. And the Father's will is that of all that were given to Him, not one of them would be lost, but He would raise it or him or her on the last day, raise them up. He's talking about the resurrection there. And he goes from, just think, he's spanning like thousands of years here. The gift of the from eternity, the gift of the Father to the Son, all the way to the resurrection of those people. Why does he go to the resurrection? That I should raise them up. That I should lose nothing but raise them up In the last day. Because the resurrection of the body, as I've said many times, is the final stage of salvation. That's the final thing that occurs when we are resurrected and we have a change of body. Our salvation is complete. Because that is the salvation of the body. That's the last thing to be saved in God's plan for us. He saves us from sin, from guilt, from sins... Domination in our life. But what about my body? My body is subject to death and decay. Decay and death. Well, God has a plan to save the body. Because he's saving the whole person. He's not not just saving souls. God is not in the business of just saving souls. He saves the entire person. The spirit, soul, and body is saved by Jesus Christ. And the last thing to be saved, again, is the body in the day of resurrection. So he's spanning the whole gamut here of God's plan of salvation. So Christ's purpose for coming into the world was to save all those who the Father gave to him to utter completion, even to the resurrection of their body. So this is is the main reason why he came. We can't have it stated any clearer than John 6, 38 and 39. Well, is that the only place it talks about why Jesus came? Well, here's here's another one, and this is completely different. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hmm. You mean Jesus came also for that purpose? Yes, he came to do something with respect to the enemy. To dismantle his kingdom. To liberate those who were in the clutches of the devil. Who were under the power of Satan. All their life long. And then to find freedom and deliverance by the power of of Jesus Christ. To destroy his works. 1 John 3.8 Now coming back to our text. Here's an, here is another reason why Jesus came. Completely different. I must let us go into the other towns. That I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. So his teaching and preaching ministry, which was an amazing thing. People had never heard anyone say the things that Jesus said. Because he came, John tells us, to reveal the Father. He came to reveal more about God than we knew about Him from the Old Testament. Especially that God is our Heavenly Father. This is something it's hinted at in the Old Testament, but we don't have the fullness of that teaching until Jesus is here. This, is, this is, it was an amazing teaching that was added to all the Old Testament truth about Yahweh, now we learn that God is our heavenly father who cares for us more deeply, loves us with a love that is anything beyond anything we've experienced from a father in this life, if we had a good father, a godly father, some of you have had bad fathers. You can't relate that with your understanding of God, except by contrast now but if you've had a, been blessed with a, a wonderful Father, God's love is way, way greater than that. Way better. Way more wonderful. The Father's love for his, his people. Jesus, Jesus' love for his people and the Father's love for Jesus' people is Infinite. We just have to think in terms that theres you can't put any boundaries on it. It's its love beyond anything we can imagine. I think of an ocean that has no bottom and has no shore. This is how I think of God's attributes, all of them, all of them. But you can apply it to love, without bottom, without shore. He's an infinite being, so everything that God... Possesses in the way of his characteristics and qualities are in the infinite degree. So his amazing love. So the Lord Jesus, he came to preach and to teach. This was a major part of his purpose in coming. We needed his revelation, we needed what he taught us. It comes out again in his dialogue with. Pilate in John 18, wonderful passage when Jesus is standing before the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate wanted to let Jesus off the hook. He didn't want to condemn him. He couldn't find any problem with him. I find no fault with him. He said it several times. But the people kept pressing crucify him. And they finally got his attention when they told Pilate, he claims to be a king. Anybody who claims to be a king is a rival of Caesar. This is a challenge to Rome. And Pilate had to listen to that. So he talks to him in private. He said, are you a king? And Jesus said, you say that I am a king. And that was an absolute confession. Yes, I am a king. Then he goes on and says, For this this purpose I was born. I mean, listen to this. This is a clear statement as to why he was here. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. What's he going to say? To die on the cross? No, he says, to bear witness to the truth. (laughs) To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. This is how you know whether a person is a Christian or not. Right here. This is a great distinguishing mark right here. Do they listen to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they believe every word that he said? Or do they challenge it and dispute it? I don't really believe that. Yeah, he was a great teacher. No, no. Every person who's of the truth hears his voice. They hear it. They listen to it. They're taught by it. They accept it. They don't challenge it. You remember what Pilate said in response to that? What is truth? That's the last thing. The text says, and then Pilate walked out of the room. He didn't wait for Jesus' answer. The truth was standing in front of him. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus could have given him a profound answer if he had stayed there to listen to his answer to that question, what is truth? Verse 39. So now we have this summary statement of his activity on this preaching tour. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. Now again, that tells us if he had access to the pulpit in the synagogues, wherever he went, and they gave him access to the the pulpit in the synagogue to teach and to preach. That means he was a recognized teacher in Israel, in all all the synagogues, and they fully entrusted the pulpit to, to him. And Jesus was invited to come and speak in all the synagogues, and he he didn't force his way in. He didn't muscle his way up to the front and start yelling and screaming at people. No, no, no. He was invited by the ruler of the synagogue. Oh, Jesus, won't you please have the pulpit today and bring us the word of God. Wherever he went, he was given access to teach God's people. And he was bringing this unique message. They never heard it before. They never heard teaching like this because he did not teach as the scribes who quoted Rabbi so-and-so. But he taught on the basis of his own authority. I say unto you. Truly, truly, I say unto you. This is how he taught. And the people were amazed at the authority with which he taught. Now notice that Mark says that he emphasizes his preaching ministry that comes first. But he does add, and he was casting out demons. Now, because he didn't say he was healing the sick, that's not to say that that's excluded from his ministry. Mark is capitalizing here, on the fact that Jesus was defeating the demonic powers that had possession of people's bodies and personalities, and he was expelling them from and liberating people from demonic possession. But the miraculous aspect of the ministry of Jesus had a purpose. They were his credentials... And they were done in order to buttress and support his preaching. So as he was preaching and ministering the word of God, and then there was the miraculous that was brought into the ministry in those synagogues. The people were, it was reinforced that here is somebody with an amazing power they had never witnessed before, it gave jesus it was like his his credentials his divine credentials the miracles were his divine credentials to validate his teaching to give it authority and this was intended to cause people to listen and to believe his message But the important thing was his teaching and preaching. Why is that? Because this, in the Bible, is the way that people come to faith, is through preaching and teaching. This is how faith is born in the heart of a person. It comes through the word of God. When we went through the book of Romans, we saw that in Romans chapter 10. and Paul begins to expound all the links in the chain of, that's involved in evangelizing. Beginning with the preacher's call. And he's called in order that he can be the one who can present the word of God but the presentation of the word of god has another link after it it's that they may believe then what they hear and those that believe are saved and so paul draws the conclusion from that and he says so then faith comes by hearing the word of god romans 10:17 very very important principle in the bible Faith comes through hearing the word of God. This is why it's important for people to listen to the word of God being preached. If they're not believers yet. This is how you're going to come to faith. This is how you will become a true believer. You listen to the word of God and God will use his word to bring a person to a position of trusting in jesus christ now romans 10 17 is one example let me use another example ephesians 1 13 paul speaking to the christians in ephesus huge church who were evangelized by paul for three years he planted the churches there in ephesus in asia minor present-day turkey is where he was And Paul, when he writes to them, he tells them, he's speaking to them of what happened. He says, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I mean, he lays it out there. This is how it comes. This is how people become believers. It's by hearing the word of truth. And then I like what what Peter said when he's reporting back to the church in Jerusalem what happened in the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion who he was told to go and preach to in Caesarea. And at first the church was upset that he went to the house of a Gentile and he spent the night there and he ate, sat at the table and ate their food and everything. And the church, they were upset. This is the Jewish church. You didn't do that with the Gentiles. But Peter calmed them down when he rehearsed what happened there and he laid it all out to them how he had had the vision of the animals that came down, and and, uh, Cornelius had a vision at the same time, brought these two together, and he told them what Peter was to do. He said, Peter will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. This is what was told to Cornelius. Peter will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. This is why the church has to evangelize. This is why the gospel needs to be preached around the world. This is how people come to faith. This is how people become believers. This is how they are saved from sin and death. It comes through the word of God. So I want to close on that point. Jesus made it real clear what he's going to do, what his plan is, why he came into the world. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.